afternoon, how are you? Yes, I am. What is your typical day looking like and is it Easter yet? Is it the holidays? So, there isn't much of a typical day because I've got, I've got two kids, one's four and one's a year old. Oh. So, it is pretty much always mayhem. The, the one-year-old doesn't sleep, so it's just, eh, it's sort of blur of tiredness and yeah. <laughs> I'm actually not doing an awful lot of work at the moment. It's intense. That, yeah, I imagine. Well, I'll try and make <laughs> this as... Hey, you, you want to talk about sleep deprivation? Talk to the comedian Mark Watson. Because in... When did he do his first one? I, I used to be involved in the radio station up at Edinburgh. And one year he mm. came through the studio. And I think he was only about eight hours through. What kind of advice does he give you for kind of sleep deprivation? Uh, <laughs> I haven't really ever spoken to him about it, actually. Um, it's quite different in a weird way I think what he get he does with those shows I think you get this slight adrenaline that you, this kind of wave of uh, I'm sure it's still very hard and they're almost impossible to, to be on stage and performing with that but um, like long term sleep deprivation it just I don't know it sort of rots you from inside it's a funny <laughs> it's a funny feeling but, but you um, love them obviously this Paul Watson is a 10th year celebration of Up Pompeii a quest to reclaim the soul of football by leading the words ultimate underdogs to glory. The cover is brilliant. It's been in my football library for 10 years. And you also helped me tick off Bristol City in my quest to read the 92. So if you don't mind talking about Bristol City as well in the next hour. Yeah, no, I mean, someone's got to, right? Hey, you've got one of the best managers ever to also manage Watford. Um, And the old... (laughs) This is a a man whose Watford team beat Man U and Liverpool and he still couldn't hold his job. And he got COVID, and he lost, I think, one of his parents and other parents were very ill. So, too long didn't read. Nigel Pearson, great manager for a great club. Yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of time for Nigel Pearson. I think um, it's just the hardest job that he took on. And I hope he doesn't feel it was as thankless as, it, as it's looked, um, to be honest. It's been pretty pretty tough rain for him, I think. No, it's one, of those, it's one of those things. We're just a club that is very difficult club to take on because we have this expectation that we should be challenging for Premier League promotion. But the reality is that actually we're probably set up like a mid-table championship club in terms of that. So it's, it's a very hard job to come into because everyone expects something that is almost impossible, I think. I've been saying for weeks the best thing that's going to happen to Watford is if we go down to the championship, championship again and become what we were when Sean Dyche took over, which was the 11th best club in the second tier with an amazing manager. We don't know who's going to manage Watford next year. At the moment, it's probably the leader of the 1881 fan movement is the favourite or someone we've never heard of. Um, wow. But, yeah, Ranieri wasn't exactly a long-term project, was it? <laughs> I was at the I was at the Norwich game, and, and Norwich are a, a club who will uh, gain even more plaudits in the next hour uh, through the links with Pompey. Uh, but I was at the Norwich game, and what were three 0 down? The lights had gone out for twenty minutes, and Ranieri was standing there, and I was looking at him, hearing the Norwich fans singing the sacked in the morning song, just thinking, Claudio, Claudio, you don't need this job. These children you're managing are your grandkids age just yeah. take the money and run and that's what he did the next week do you feel sorry for any manager that gets sacked by Watford no I think you do know what you're getting into don't you I, I think I, as you said I don't totally understand why anyone takes it on especially someone like Claudio I think there's an addiction to football that starts to kick in and I think these managers can't imagine what it'd be like not to have a, a project on the go I just thought it was a very strange decision to take that one on. If I was if I was Claudio, I'd be taking on 
something in a really nice warm climate where no one really there's no huge pressure on you i mean even just an italian job would just be a lot more fun than watford just sounded like hardest job to walk into it is no fun and we're talking two days before Watford will get spanked 5-6 or maybe 7-0 at Anfield because the last five or six games the average scoreline is about four and a half nil despite that amazing game that Nigel Pearson managed to uh, corral Watford's players to the last game before the pandemic Uh, so Nigel Pearson will always have the ability to beat Liverpool 3-0 and end that long run Um, But I just wanted to uh, commend Bristol City because I'm trying to talk to a fan of all of the 92 clubs. And as I sat down to talk to you, I realised, ah, I've never talked to a Bristol City fan. So I get to tick City off. At what age did you go to Ashton Gate? Was it Ashton Gate for the first time? Yeah, it's it's funny because I have uh, the thing with childhood memories. It's very hard to say whether they're correct or not. My memory of my first game was that it was Bristol City versus Oxford in the Anglo-Italian Cup. Uh, and it was the Anglo Italian Cup was fantastic in that we never Bristol City never made it through to play in the Italian teams. It was a pound to get in, I think, so we all oh. got brought along to this game, and um, like everyone was bringing their kids to, to it because it was so cheap. But I, I have this memory, and if it is the game that I remember, it would have been 1993, I think, which would have actually made me nine. So I think I probably did go before that. That's just the game that stuck in my memory. I think because it was just such a dreadful <laughs> event, but I really enjoyed it. You know, as a kid, to sound it just felt really exciting. But I think it was probably a terrible game. I don't actually remember the score, but I suspect it could have been nil nil. I'll have a look. Did you remember any players from that day, from that game? From that specific game, um, no. I think it was before the players that would like live long as my sort of heroes. Um, the kind of the, the Gary Hours and the Martin Cools and. <laughs> And the Sean Taylors and oh God, Greg Goodrich and Mickey Bell and Darren Barnard, all these players over the years that became your heroes. I think this must have predated them because I wasn't old enough to really take in who 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 was on the field, really, I don't think, at night. Well, at nine years old, I just supported football. I had all kinds of shirts. I had a Spurs, Arsenal and United shirt. I didn't have a Watford shirt. I'd been to Watford. But I was just, I think, like all nine-year-olds, maybe your nephews, for instance, Mark's kids, um, they're just enamoured by men kicking a ball into a goal. Um, I just wanted to mention, while we're talking Bristol City for the moment, Darius Jikanovsky. I'm going to guess that's how it's pronounced. Jikanovsky, yeah. Yes. Who is, according to a footnote on page 16 of the paperback of At Pompeii, a Polish striker who played for Bristol City 92-3. He was hugely popular with fans at Ashton Gate, but less so with the manager, whose wife he allegedly bedded. Mm. That's a story. Uh, again, you you kind of grow up hearing that, and I never really... Ch- I think it is true. It was Russell Osman was the manager, and I believe that's the story of why we got rid of him. But I get, like, this is the thing with, with the history, is I I think the fan history was very much that that was why he left, um, because he was he was a really good player. And I guess that well, he would have been in that 1992-93 sort of era. Um, he was probably too skillful for us, but I think he did leave fairly suddenly and went back to Poland and I think that that is the reason that was widely believed by fans Uh, Um, print the legend Uh, school friends supported Manchester United or Arsenal and changed allegiance at the slightest whim sometimes several times during the same game but I didn't care about the glamour sides and glory hunting 
Instead of playing England versus Brazil, Mark and I, the comedian Mark Watson, for those who don't know, with many a Saturday afternoon sacrifice to Bolivia, Paraguay or Saudi Arabia, Yemen. So you were already, in a time when not much football was on telly, you already had broad horizons, which must have made you and Mark stand out. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I remember quite a big part of the upbringing was sensible soccer. That was the game that, in a way, was a part of this, was that, you know, we... we had a Amiga console, uh, console, and that was what we had. A, and we used to play endless tournaments of sensible soccer. And I think what was really exciting was that computer football games went from always having like about eight teams in them, you know, Brazil, England, and suddenly you had this computer game that came out with every league you could possibly imagine. And the, the players, I, I believe, were all accurate. And suddenly we were able to play sort of any game, and, and we just create these like 64 team tournaments with teams from you know Ecuador through to you know all over the world basically and and it kind of yeah helped feed this this thing of sort of looking for the most exotic side of football rather than just sticking with the what the kids in the playground wanted to do which was be yeah at the time be Newcastle I think I remember a lot of people became Newcastle fans for (laughs) a brief period (laughs) money talks I, I actually inwardly despair every time I see a child wearing a Man City strip I almost want to go, if it weren't illegal, I'd go and shake them and say, don't you know what they're doing in Abu Dhabi? And they'll go, no, De Bruyne is really good at passing. But that is where we are. And um, I just, I wanted to note that uh, football manager, Miles Jacobson, this very week was featured in The Telegraph. So we already have um, football gaming, football simulation games becoming mainstream. I would, I would never play as, I'd never do a save as a minnow because I did want a war chest. Uh, on which to spend. But my dear, my tactical side was useless. There will be in this football library, Paul, you actually put your book up, Pompeii, on the shelves of the football library, which is a mind palace uh, full of every book, programme, magazine, and also in the Andy Holt lounge, which is kind of the DOS room, uh, I guess we'll have an Amiga console set up with a 1992 branded kind of TV that you wheel into a school assembly. uh, So you can... You can dominate that. Can we win a stays on? Remember, we used to play actual tournaments. We win Bristol tournaments of sensible water soccer. Uh, Mark won the Bristol championships once, and I think I think I'm right in saying I won it a couple of years later. So it was sort of like a yeah change of the guard moment. Mm. Um, so we were we were genuinely like really very good at that. But many years before playing computer football would actually earn you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nowadays, we have features on esports and esports competitors boasting about playing for hours a day and being paid and being assigned to various clubs. I have no interest because I'm 34 years old. But what would happen if one of your kids would want to play esports like as a kid, kind of like an after school tournament where you can win money against interschools? There must be interschool esports. Now. There's sort of this belief that in our generation, you know, I'm 37, and this belief that in our generation we should really scowl at esports. And actually, I don't have a problem with it. I, the problem comes when you pit esports against sports, it, and it, it's not really like that. I don't believe that there are kids out there who are saying, well, I'm, I want to play on my computer, therefore I'm not going to play football outside. I don't think it, it's as simple as that. I think that's... And actually, what I really like about esports is it is uniting people around the world in playing something that they love. And I, I don't have a problem with it. I think people always assume I'll hate esports, but I really, I really don't. And maybe it's partly my upbringing, you know, that football was something we loved to play outside, but also we play on the computer, and it didn't 
mean one took away from the other necessarily. Well, it would mean that you would get to play people over internet connections in I'm just uh, Bolivia, Paraguay, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, uh, the the worst team in the world. Yap, yap. <laughs> yap. Yeah, yap. <laughs> well, I don't, if you can find an internet connection good enough in yap, that would be the challenge. That, I was actually having this conversation today about esports and talk about how it could actually be an avenue to unite countries in quite remote places, you know, Kiribati and the Pacific and Pompeii and try and get people playing esports against each other. And it'd be invariably it'd be the internet connection, which is yeah. it's just not up to it so much of the time in that part of the world. It's coming. Well if if human ingenuity can build a Dyson helmet that purifies the air around you, surely we can get internet connections. Aren't you in Gloucestershire now? Yeah, yeah. I am. The internet connection's great in Gloucestershire now. Maybe depending well, where you are. Yeah, it, our one's usually really strong, and then it'll just drop out at the least convenient moment. But I think that's probably just life. What I'm going to do in a minute, as I turn this chicken, is I will ask you just to name the best 11, the best Bristol City 11, from the time that you've watched it. I mean, a whole 11... <sighs> gets fiddly because you're trying to think of different different positions and it, oh, it's, it's tricky i remember i did this quite recently on the podcast and it it was yeah it, it was trickier than you think it took me about two days to pull it together now i usually i do um impose this question a few hours before but it was just a last minute realization or if not 11 aside five aside because you've played yeah, kind yeah, of indoor well, football i mean i could probably pull i could pull together most of a team Goal, I think you've got to have Adriano Basso, the, the Brazilian legend that is. I mean, Adriano Basso definitely got to have Scott Murray in there. Actually, also the nicest man in the world, as well as being a brilliant player, scored some iconic goals for us. Uh, then, it get, then it gets tricky because it depends whether you're doing it sentimentally or actually who is the best player. Um, so I'll, I'll choose some sentimental picks. So Brian Tinian's got to be in there. Not, not least just for that goal against Liverpool. You know, I, I could probably rattle off a whole team, but I imagine that wouldn't be very interesting to anyone. No, well, this is what I want to do. I'm, I'm curious because every team all the way down the leagues have these cult players. And I know nothing about Gillingham's legends, but there's someone who draws, although he did draw Tony Pulis without a cap, which is very strange. Yeah, the, the cap's actually a part of his head, so you can't... Like a Lego, tape. yes. Good point. Um, yeah, like a, like a Lego. <laughs> well, he's still, and obviously like a... Tammy Abraham goes up front, the Roma striker. Um, well, does he? It depends. Again, this was something we got really bogged down on. Is it just technically who are the best players you have or, or, or have had? Or is it players that have played the best for, you, for your yeah. club? Or is it players... And that got really difficult because you get people who had one season with us and were brilliant, but... Do you count them? And then there are players that left and there was a slight sort of bitterness in the way they left. And do you want them in a Legends team? Players that went to rivals like Aidan Flint, you know, do you do you put him in? Brilliant player, but went to Cardiff. Mm. <laughs> you know, where, where do you draw the lines? Oh, it's funny. The players I remember most fondly actually aren't necessarily the most talented. I remember mostly... Greg Goodrich, for example, no one in the no one in the world outside of Bristol City will remember Greg Goodrich. Um, but again, in that period, growing up watching football, we were a completely talentless side on the whole. We, we were a really dull watch when we were sort of uh, yo-yoing around the, the bottom two divisions, and um, and 
we brought this guy in called Greg Goodrich, and he was from Barbados and really like a little tricky winger. And he beat players, and we'd never seen someone beat players. <laughs> it was just, it was so exciting to watch him. To be honest, his end product often wasn't there, but just to watch someone skip round defenders was so exciting. Um, similarly, we never scored from free kicks. So when we suddenly had, um, well, we had Darren Barnard and Mickey Bell, who were uh, wing backs who could score from free kicks, and it was the most exciting thing in the world to suddenly score from free kicks. And these are the things you remember, I think, as a fan. Uh, and similarly, like just individual goals. I remember for a very short while we had, a, we had a, an Australian player called um, David Seal, and he scored an amazing goal, absolutely incredible goal. I think it might have even been on his debut. Um, and then not really much after that, as I remember, he, he didn't become a sort of superstar, but just just alone the excitement of us having an Australian player <laughs> and him scoring this amazing goal. Um, you know, these, these are the, these are the things as I remember it. And you don't really get those when you have a sort of best. Eleven is more just those little players that live long in your memory. You'll never forget. I was just going to say when you actually look at it, David Seal ended up playing for Mangotsfield United most of his career. Uh, did very well for them. He scored a hell of a load of goals for them. He'll always be a legend to me, even though I think he was only with us three years and he scored about ten goals for us. But I'll never forget him. That's a whole book there because I've, I'm just about to publish this book that I'm not here to talk about about the FA Youth Cup, and I'm sort of mm. looking for another football book but I don't think I can I think I've just got the one because there was no book about the youth cup I think I mentioned Bristol City in as much that they've never won it they're one of the teams who have never won it um oh well that's bad news (laughs) yeah no one book well I know the feeling one book (laughs) and we are we are celebrating this book up Pompeii a quest to reclaim the soul of football by leading the world's ultimate underdogs to glory Paul Watson is the author and it's it is a remarkable book. It stands up. The only book of the sort I'd read was Bamboo Goalposts by Rowan Simons, which came out around the same time. I don't know if you've spoken to Rowan or if you've been on panels with him. He went to China with a football. Yeah, I did. Um, I think someone tried to introduce me to him. I don't think we ever were put in touch. I think maybe he was... He's in China still, is he? Or I think so, because he was working for CCTV over there. Oh, was he really? Mm. Um, yeah, no, someone tried to put us in touch once who knew both of us and had read both our books, but I, I don't believe he ever got back to me. So, <laughs> so I'm still bitter about that. But no, <laughs> um, well, no but I, I read his book and really enjoyed it, actually. And um, yeah, I can see a similarity there, actually. I didn't even realise it had... In, the, in his subtitle, it had One Man's Quest in there. It's almost very similar to my... I, I didn't actually... Don't think I wanted a subtitle for my book. I didn't choose the title. It was the publishers got really excited about the title for it because of <laughs> if Up Pompeii, which I have never, still to this day, never watched, um, and demanded that was going to be the title. And so I think they then realised that it needed a subtitle to explain what that meant because nobody knew what Pompeii was. And so we constructed that very laborious title to explain what the book is. <laughs> now, interestingly, I just noticed this. The copyright on the book, this is the kind that a factoid that interests me in the football library. Copyright has gone to Paul Watson and Matthew Conrad. So we're celebrating mm-hmm. his work as well. Matthew was your kind of Sancho Panza, if you're Don Quixote, which is a book I've not read. Yeah, kind of book I pretend to have read. Yeah, as, uh, as I've no. done. I just tilt at windmills all day long. <laughs> so... Um, you, are you still in touch? Have you, were you celebrating the 10th anniversary of this book in February together? Yeah, after the Pompeii Project, uh, after we actually finished working there, um, Matt had planned to make a documentary uh, about it. 
and I was going to do the book. But we decided we'd be 50-50 on the copyright for both in case either of us ever made a fortune. Yeah, very <laughs> so good. The, 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 the U2 rule. The U2 rule. Yeah, the U2 rule. Um, so, yeah, that, that was how that divided up. So, yeah, I, I wrote the book on my own, but, uh, yeah, Matt did the documentary on his own. So it was sort of 50-50 split. So, yeah, we're, we're still in touch. Matt lives in L.A. now, um, and so we don't get to chat as much as we like. But, yeah, we're still very much in touch with each other. That's marvellous. So you split the, not the PRS fees, but the library withdrawal fees, all 8p uh, of it. But this is the kind of book, if you saw it in a library, I think it is in the Watford Library, actually. And if you see it, you are drawn to the cover, which is great. Um, the bump at the back, which is to find the world's worst football team, become citizens of that country and win an international cap. But this team needs a coach. Um, so having coached a club, do you now realise that managing any team, managing upwards, downwards, sideways, is almost impossible? Yes, that's probably true. I think it was very divorced from what it would be like to manage a, a professional team in this country. You know, it was a very different experience. And actually an experience that I think a lot of people have had. Um, I think when you coach in a more remote or perhaps a, a more footballing sort of developing nation you often find you actually end up doing five or six different jobs so you're you know Pompey was extreme you know you become groundsman kitman uh, media marketing you become the whole lot with a job like that but I think there's elements of that in coaching in any up-and-coming nation you know developing football nation you take on a lot more than the job spec seems to entail but I, but I think that's kind of true of management generally, but I think it's extreme in those scenarios. Yeah, I spoke to Justin Wally, whom you will know very well through work that we'll discuss in the second half. Mm. Uh, and he, he was the coach of Matabeliland for the Kanifa team. Mm. And he seems to just throw himself uh, full swing into, I think it, the, the book was something, like, Team Without Nets, Football Without Nets, Football Without Nets. Um, which is just amazing. It's kind of, yeah, I've, I've pitched myself up here. It's like building a civilization wherever he goes. And it was the first time, I was 24 when I read this, came out in 2012, so we're celebrating 10 years. I'm now 34. I've now reached the age that I think you got to a bit earlier than me, which is that love the game, hate the industry. Do you think more people, from those whom you've spoken to in the last years, more people have come round to that view? Yes. I think it's quite interesting actually reading back, reading the book, uh, which I haven't really done, <laughs> but I've read elements of it. In a weird way, not to blow my own trumpet, but it was maybe a tiny bit ahead of its time. I, th I think I got a bit sick of football in the industry before the industry got a lot worse. I think a lot of people are getting there now because of some slightly more dramatic and ugly, obviously ugly things going on at the moment. Um, but I think this was the trend I started to identify, and that was back in, what, 20... I suppose I wrote it in 2011, um, published in 2012. I already could kind of see this divorce between the game at its roots and, and what it was becoming, the, the industry it's becoming. So, yeah, I suppose in that way, I got I got a bit sick of that a long time ago and have only just kind of continued on that path. Where some people, I think it's it's only now that they're starting to feel a bit repulsed by it. I was very surprised when uh, someone I went to school with, who's now a lawyer, well-known Chelsea fan, and then I was told, oh, he's, he doesn't support them anymore. And I think I twigged why. It's the footballification of the world. Everyone has to pick a side, any side. Are you Chris Rock? Are you Will Smith? 
Are you blue or red? It's very like, much like the Roman charioteer, but just with billions of dollars. Um, and talking of billions of dollars, where were you when the FIFA headquarters was invaded or the Hotel du Lac? When, where were you? Well, am, I, am I under suspicion? <laughs> no, where, yeah, on the night. Yeah, what's your alibi? No, you're, you're in Mongolia, I think, but that's by the by. No, but do you remember hearing the arrest? No, I didn't. I don't remember hearing anything about it. I think I probably was in Mongolia. And I, if I was, I didn't hear anything about much there, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. You're quite out of the loop there. It was just very scary. And when you heard that they were only arrested because of a whistleblower who lived with his cats, in, or the cats has a separate flat, in Trump Tower. And when you learned that, is it 21 of 22 people who put who voted for the World Cup 2018-2022 were kicked off. FIFA's supposed to be brand new, and yet we are talking the, on the day where Gianni Infantino is throwing around words like Mandela and Gandhi and the children. See, it's the same. FIFA is beyond repair, isn't it? It is. It is. But what I found very interesting, and you could almost write a paper on this, I think. I couldn't, but one could. Um, was to find really similar problems. So later on when I joined CONIFA, so they effectively the non-FIFA FIFA for places that, that aren't recognised, um, and there was no money anywhere involved in CONIFA. CONIFA has never had any money. It was always rooting around for the next, you know, it has 600 euros in its account when I first joined them. And the same problems are absolutely inherent in CONIFA that are in FIFA too. And it's, I think it's a people thing. Corruption is a lot about people and their territory and their status as much as it's about money. I would love to ask you all about the politics of Kanifa, but we just don't have time or you'd no comment it. But I should say that you were the tournament director for the very successful Kanifa World Cup 2018. You've now stepped away from the organisation and in the second half uh, we'll move away from Bristol and give a rundown of just this career where you have been called. How about this for a, a throw forward? The Mongolian Simon Cowell. 